there, uh, I want to make some comments and kind of set the direction for the service. Um, I'm always asking questions. A part of the, the way that God deals with me is um, oftentimes he'll ask me questions. And I guess that's because I'm always asking him questions. But in, in questioning what we do and why we do it, that's a big thing with me. Because we can get in the habit of doing something and it not necessarily be the right thing to do. And so then we develop a habit of doing something that God didn't intend for us to do to begin with. I hope you understand what I mean by that. And so I'm, I'm consistently asking questions about why do we do what we do. And one thing that, uh, that seems apparent to me, you judge this for yourself. But when one church does something somewhere and has success or a measure of success with it, it seems like all the other churches want to do the same thing. And so as a result, in many cases, maybe not every case, but in many cases, you've got one church, one group of believers that are operating according to God's purpose for them. And then you've got a bunch of other churches that are trying to imitate what they're doing to get their success, but their success won't be the same or it won't come in the same way or in the same measure because that's not what God has for them to do. And so I'm always looking for what should we do, how should we do, why should we do what we do, and so forth. And one thing that, um, that seems apparent to me is that we preach differently than Jesus did. Now, hopefully we're preaching the word. That's certainly the plan and the purpose of God, and Jesus did that. But we don't see anywhere in, in uh, the four Gospels an account any, in any instance whatsoever where Jesus says to the people in Nazareth, let me tell you what happened in Capernaum. Or when he says uh, in Bethsaida, let me tell you what happened over in this other place. Where he says to the people in Decapolis, let me tell you how, about how I ministered healing or delivered this person over here in this other town. It's, it seems that uh, modern day ministry is about trying to find examples of where God used us or displayed his power in and through us in some way or another to prove what the Bible is saying is true. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus taught the word wherever he went. I don't doubt that he taught the same message on, on many occasions. I'm guessing... Well, I'm, I say I'm guessing. I guess I should give it a little bit more foundation than that. Brother Hagin said that when Jesus appeared to him on one occasion, Jesus referred to the situation in Luke chapter 4 and in Mark chapter 6. Both of those accounts tell when Jesus went to his own hometown of Nazareth. Luke chapter 4 tells us what happened when he was in the synagogue. It says he stood up for to read as his custom was, and he found the place in the book of Isaiah. We know it as Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1. But Jesus began to preach from Isaiah 61 scriptures that everybody knew were pertaining to and prophesying about the Messiah. And so he began to read from uh, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. He tells what he was anointed to do. To preach the gospel of the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, preach the covering of sight to the blind, preach deliverance to the captives, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then Jesus says... He hands the scrolls back to the, the uh, priest in the synagogue, sits down, and says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Everybody knows he's saying, these scriptures are talking about me. We know from some things that were said following that, that statement, when Jesus was still there in, uh, in Nazareth, we know that Jesus knows that they have heard of the, of the great miracles and signs and wonders that were done in Capernaum. He said, I know what you're going to say unto me. You're going to say the same miracles, the same healing works and so forth that were done in Capernaum do here too. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know your position. You don't believe what I said. You don't believe what I read is, uh, from Isaiah 61 is pertaining to me. You just want me to put on a show. And that's not the way it works. And so Mark 6 picks up the story and it said in, the, in verse 5, and he could there do no mighty work. doesn't say that he wouldn't. It says he could there do no mighty work, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Then it says he went around about their cities and villages teaching, trying to inspire faith. The only thing he was able to do is heal a few people with uh, uh, minor illness, not much wrong with them. And so he tries to counteract the unbelief of Nazareth by teaching the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word to try to get the people in that area, that town, 
to believe so that God can do through Jesus what he sent him there to do. There were people in that town, that city of Nazareth, that God sent Jesus there to heal. There may have been blind people that Jesus was sent to heal. There may have been lame people in in Nazareth that Jesus was sent there to heal. But the plan of God, the will of God, the will of Jesus himself was thwarted, nullified by the unbelief of the people in that town. So we don't really see places where Jesus talks about his healing ministry. In fact, there's a lot of times where Jesus ministered healing to people and he said, don't tell anybody about this. Now, I've heard a lot of comments about this, that Jesus was uh, supposedly using reverse psychology on people to get the word out and so forth. I don't believe any of that. I don't believe Jesus played mind games with people. I don't believe Jesus tried to manipulate anybody. And then that brings us to the question, why did he not want people to know? The only answer I've got for that is that he expects us to put our faith in the word, not our faith in the things that have happened to other people. If it goes beyond that or it goes further than that, I don't know. That much I know fits, but that may not be the complete answer either. So if we fast forward to the epistles, we don't see Paul or Peter or James or John telling about personal experiences that they had when they ministered healing or ministered the power of God to other people. Now we've got evidence of that in the book of Acts, but these are third party events where Luke is just uh, identifying and reporting the things that happened. But we don't have Peter walking up to a crowd and saying, you know, the, yesterday I had the shadow, my shadow healed people. And so maybe let's make that work again today. We don't have people, any of the apostles or any of the disciples using their stories of ministry to establish the truth of the word. Now, folks, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I cut my teeth on Brother Hagin. He was all about stories. He made the word plain and clear and, and taught a lot of us that it wasn't just for Jesus or the apostles, Jesus in the, in the Gospels, or for the apostles in the book of Acts, but that the word works for us today the same that it did back then for them. And so there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not throwing stones at anybody for the way they operate. I assume everybody else is trying to do the best they can just like I am. And whatever works or whatever way God wants to use us, so be it. But if you look at the the epistles particularly, the letters written by uh, Paul and Peter and John and James, if you look at that, there is somebody's example that they use a lot, and that's Abraham's. They don't use their own ministry experience. And, And I wish there was a lot of that in there. I wish there was more information about their ministry experience so that we could draw from them and be inspired to do the same things that they did. But the Holy Ghost didn't see fit to leave, it that, leave us that. But one person that they talked a lot about is Abraham. Now, if you look at the New Testament at the number of times in the epistles, not the book of Acts, not including the Gospels, but in the letters written to the churches, there was about 50 times where Abraham is talked about or used as an example in Scripture. 25 of those times, as you would well imagine, were to the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Well, that makes sense because Abraham is their history. The Jews would know about Abraham much more than anybody else would because they've, been, they've grown up listening to stories about Abraham and hearing things from the Old Testament that related to Abraham as being their father in the faith. About 10 times each, Abraham is talked about in the, the letters written to the Galatian churches and the letters Paul wrote to Rome. The other four or five times are scattered between James and Peter. Now, when we look at it from a historical context, and I like to, I like to put history in it, it, it makes the word more real to me. When I think about the letters that Paul wrote to the churches and the circumstances under which he wrote those letters, somehow or another it brings me closer to an understanding of what God is trying to convey through his word and why. And again, questions are big for me. I want to know not just what happened, I want to know why. So when Paul starts talking to the Galatians, 
churches that he's visited twice before he writes the letter back to them. He talks about Abraham beginning in chapter 3. Let's start reading in chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? Let me set this up and give you some background. Apparently, from what we know and the things that Paul wrote in this letter to the Galatian churches, as well as some things that are identified in the book of Acts, after Paul begins his missionary journeys, and he goes from city to city to establishing churches, and he had a similar pattern for everything that he did. He would go into a town that was big enough to have a synagogue. There weren't synagogues in all the towns throughout the, the region that he traveled. But he would go to the major centers, the major, major cities, bigger cities, where there were uh, synagogues. And he would go in and use his priest training to talk about the law and the prophets. And then after a period of time, after he would gain the um, favor of the people, by them recognizing his skill in the word and, and the, the education that he had concerning the Old Testament. Then he would be prompted by the Holy Ghost or something would happen where he would testify that Jesus is the Messiah. That usually ended his synagogue ministry because the Jews weren't willing to accept that. And so then he would go to a nearby place where he would continue to meet with those that wanted to hear about Jesus. And a lot of the Jews left the synagogues to go with him. And so that infuriated the synagogue rulers and so forth. You could well imagine. They feel like Paul's come in and split their church. So Paul would continue the work for whatever period of time the Lord would have him stay in that town. But when the time came for Paul to leave, and he always left, he always moved on to some other place. The time came when he would leave that the Jews, religious leaders mostly from Jerusalem, would send people into these churches, into the synagogues. And the people that had left the synagogues, you can understand that after Paul would leave a town, the people that had left the synagogues to go hear Paul preach would sometimes, oftentimes, filter back into the synagogues. And so there was this conflict that was going on between keeping the law of Moses and accepting salvation by faith. And so the Jews from the religious leaders from Jerusalem would send people to try to tell these new converts of Paul, Jesus is good. We're all for the work that Jesus did. He did good things. We believe that he's the son of God, but you still have to keep the law of Moses, which completely undermined everything that Paul taught. It completely went across cross grain with everything that Paul taught and everything that Jesus had revealed to him about salvation. Well, that's what's happened here in the churches in Galatia. Galatia is a region, not a town. And so of all the, um, the cities, Lystra and Derby, for example, were part of the region of Galatia. Those were nearby towns, but they were separate places. And so Paul would write back and is writing back to them, questioning them on why they would let the Jews impose the law upon them now that they've been born again and now that they've received Jesus as their Savior. What good is the law of Moses if Jesus didn't fulfill it, in other words? So this is what he's questioning with them. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you or deceived you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? In other words, he's saying if the preaching of Jesus had not been true, you couldn't have gotten saved. Your salvation, the change that occurred in you when you made Jesus the Lord of your life, that could only happen if it were true. So who's going to turn you back to the law and turn you away from what's already changed your life? This only would I learn of you. Received you the spirit by the works of the law or the hearing of faith. Now receiving the spirit he's talking about certainly includes salvation, the new birth. But he may also be talking about those that were filled with the Holy Ghost. That would be a common practice for Paul to teach on the Holy Ghost. That's what he tried to do when he went to Philippi, remember? He found people washing by the river. He thought they were disciples. And so he asked him, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? He's talking about being baptized with the Holy Spirit and speaking in other tongues. They said, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. He said, under what then are you baptized? They said, under John's baptism. And so that's when Paul says, okay, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. But he talked about and preached that there was another one coming after him. 
Well, that other one coming after him was Jesus who came and died for our sakes. And now the kingdom of heaven is available to us through the new birth. So he got him saved and got him filled with the Holy Ghost too. So that's probably what he's talking about here. He's probably using receiving the spirit as a general term, talking about both salvation and the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So here's this question. Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? He's saying if the flesh didn't have anything, the flesh meaning the keeping of the law, if that didn't have anything to do with you getting born again, if it didn't have anything to do with you receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, what good is the law for you now? How is it going to add anything to you? You've already got proof in your life that it's faith in Jesus that does the work and changes us and not the keeping of the law. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain? Now here he's talking about persecution. He said people didn't persecute you because you were a Jew. People didn't persecute you because you were keeping the law. The persecution and the fights that you've stood in the midst of. The holding fast to what you were taught to be true. Wasn't because you're a Jew or because you're a keeper of the law. It's because there's work of the devil against Jesus and against the church. Have you suffered so many things in vain? If it yet be in vain, he's saying, I hope it's not too late yet. Verse 5. He therefore that ministers to you the spirit and worketh miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, Paul, one of the reasons I relate to Paul so well is Paul asks questions. Paul asks questions about everything. Now, the reason he asks questions is because he wanted people to know what they believed and why they believed it. And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, the people among you that minister the spirit to you, again, he may be talking about the baptism of the Holy Ghost, But he's certainly talking in a general sense about the Holy Ghost being ministered to the church in any number of ways, gifts of the Spirit, for example, or whatever. He says, he asked the question, do the people that minister the Spirit among you do it by the works of the law? Is that how you get miracles to take place? The one that works miracles among you, does he do it by the keeping of the law? Now he's pointing out something that they absolutely know, and that is no miracles happened until they got born again. No miracles happened until they put faith in Jesus. It wasn't the keeping of the law that ever made a miracle work for any of them. And so here's Paul's question. He's saying, you've experienced the supernatural. One of the first things they saw about Paul is the first time Paul went, he got stoned and was left for dead. And the Lord raised him up and he went back into the cities that sent out the people to do the stoning of him to show that he was alive. So they knew, they knew that they had witnessed Paul being raised from the dead, raised from physical death. It says the Jews stoned him and left him for dead. They supposed he had been dead. Well, these are professional stoners, folks. They know what they're doing. So when they left him for dead, they're not going to just take a chance that maybe he's still alive. They want to do away with this guy once and for all. And they did. But it says, as the believers stood round about, the spirit of life came back into Paul, into his body, and he arose. They witnessed that. They know about that. They know something about miracles. They know something about the sustaining and delivering power of God. They know. So Paul's question, the one that works miracles among you, the one that ministers the Holy Ghost among you or to you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Well, faith is the obvious answer. Keeping the law doesn't do anything. It doesn't bring anything supernatural on the the scene whatsoever. So Paul answers his own question in verse 6. It says, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that the people have to have a working knowledge of Abraham and the faith of Abraham to understand what Paul is, is referring to. Now, how does Paul, why does Paul assume that the people have heard enough or know enough about Abraham and Abraham's faith in God to use him as an example? He doesn't go into any detail here. He doesn't say, even as Abraham believed God, and remember how Abraham believed God. 
He goes into those steps and identifies those steps in Romans chapter 4. But he doesn't hear to the Galatian churches. And the only reason that he would not is if he had spent enough time with them when he was there, the two times previous that he was there. He spent enough time talking about and preaching about the faith of Abraham and the steps that Abraham took to receive from God, to receive the miracle working power of God in his body so that he and Sarah had a child when they were past childbearing years. He knows they know because he knows he taught them. So he doesn't go into detail. He reminds them that it was the faith that Abraham used that brought the miracle to him. That's the same faith that you and I should use and should operate by to receive a miracle for us. Now, here's the the side note for this. We're not in the same position the Galatian churches are in. I'm not being tempted to keep the law of Moses in in any way, are you? That part doesn't apply to us. The historical significance of it may be interesting. But that's not the important part. The important part for us, the way that we personalize this, is to realize that Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost that the same faith that Abraham used to believe God in his situation can be used by you and me in our situations. And it'll produce miracles every time. You can have a miracle just like Abraham had a miracle. You can have a miracle just like they witnessed these miracles through Paul's ministry and and during the times that he was there with them. Now in Romans chapter 4, look with me over there. Romans chapter 4, Paul talks to another church, not a Jewish church, a Gentile church. And these churches in Galatia, they're all Gentile churches. There would be no way that they would know anything about Abraham because he's not a part of their history. They're not descendants of Abraham's. They're not Jews. So what do they know about Abraham or his faith? Or what should they care? Well, if Abraham's faith was not the example, the foundational example for us to follow, then who cares about Abraham? Who even cares about the covenant God made with Abraham? If we know and find out that that covenant belongs to us now or has been fulfilled so that we have the same benefits of a covenant with God that Abraham had, then all we need to know is what the covenant was. We wouldn't need to know anything else. We wouldn't need to know about Abraham looking at the sky and God saying the stars of the heavens will be like your seed. Who cares? If it's not for our example, if it's not for us to learn from and operate on, then who cares about Abraham? Why should the Gentile churches care? And the answer is because his faith is the foundation example for anything and everything that we want to receive from God. Paul hasn't established these churches in Rome. People that were saved and converted in his ministry have. So he's basically their spiritual grandfather. Now as their spiritual grandfather, he assumes, I I guess, it would make sense for him to assume that the things that he taught those that were converted in his ministry that started these churches the truth about Abraham and Abraham's covenant and how Abraham believed God should have been taught to these other believers. That's the majority of the things that the people that were converted in Paul's ministry and started these churches in Rome would know anyway. What are they going to know outside of what Paul taught them? Certainly God would speak to them, but he's not going to speak to them in a contrary manner or with opposing doctrine to the things that he revealed to Paul. Do you see where I'm going with this? Have I made the point sufficiently? But because Paul knows he hasn't taught them personally, then he goes into great detail throughout the entirety of the book of Romans, not just chapter 4, but through the entirety of the book of Romans, he talks about the faith of Abraham. He talks about the place that Abraham holds as our father in faith. He talks about the example and the covenant benefits and rights that are now ours plus even more. Romans chapter 4, verse 17. Well, let me back up and read the last part of verse 16 to establish the context. He talks about salvation is by a faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed and not to that only which is of the law. But to that also which is the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. He's talking about not just 
The blessing of Abraham don't just belong to those that are natural descendants of Abraham, but also to the Gentiles who believe in Jesus. As it is written, verse 17, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. This is a real difficult scripture, or was for me for a long time. We know that the scripture tells us, and Paul is identifying to the Roman Christians. Most of them are not Jews. Most of them are Gentiles. He's identifying to them basic information about God's dealing and his interaction with Abraham. And the first thing that he talks about is what God had told Abraham, that he has made him the father of many nations. Not, I'm going to make you the father of nations. But God said to Abraham, I've already done it. He used the past tense to say that it's already been done. Now, how had it already been done? Is it true physically? No, not yet. But as far as God is concerned, he's dictated it, he's spoken it, and his word cannot lie. So as far as God is concerned, it's done. And that's one of the key elements of faith that so many people never get. God's word's not true when it comes to pass. God's word's true when God speaks it. And it's believing what God said that has already been done that brings it into physical reality. Now, most Christians, most people who don't have a working knowledge or understanding of faith, they want to wait for something to change in the physical realm, and then they want to believe it. But that kind of faith won't make it happen. That's natural human faith instead of Bible faith. So here, right out of the gate, and Paul is going to tell them something that... um, Well, how do I say this? I don't want to say that it was difficult, but it's one of the most misunderstood parts or elements of the subject of faith that there is. And he starts right out of the gate. He says, even as it is written, God said, I have made thee the father of many nations. Now notice the next phrase, before him whom he believed. That's a poor translation, but it's understandable why the translators translated it like this, because there's no way that they had the understanding of what Paul was really trying to say. Here where it says, before him whom he believed, in the margin of my reference Bible and, uh, and other, many other translations, it's got a little GR by the word before, and the margin will tell you that it literally means in the Greek, like. So instead of saying before him whom he believed, it's saying like unto him whom he believed. In other words, it's telling us that Paul, or Paul is telling us that Abraham was an imitator of God. Regarding his faith, he imitated God. He acted like God acts. Now, folks, that shouldn't throw us. I know some people get sacrilegious about this stuff. But that shouldn't throw us because the Bible tells us to forgive one another even as God forgave us for Christ's sake. In other words, it tells you to forgive like God. Well, that's acting like God then, isn't it? The Bible tells us to love one another, not just people that are good to us, but to love each other because of the love of God that's been shed abroad in our our hearts. Well, that means we're supposed to act like God when it comes to walking in love then right? The Bible tells us to be perfect even as our Father in heaven is perfect. Well, that means act like God then, doesn't it? So when Paul is talking about Abraham's faith, one of the first things he identifies is that Abraham's faith and the thing that made it successful, the thing that made it the example for all time, the thing that brought the miracle results is because Abraham imitated God. He didn't do something wild and wacky on his own because he thought it was the way to go. He imitated God. Now, how did he imitate God? As we mentioned, there are three or four things that we just spoke of that could all be imitating God. But that had nothing to do with Abraham's situation or his faith. In what way was Abraham an imitator or like unto God? Two things that are mentioned in this verse. Who quickeneth the dead, who makes dead things alive, And who calls things that be not as though they were. It says specifically in those two things. If it didn't give a specific explanation here. Then we could come up with a a lot of ways that maybe Abraham tried to be like God. Or tried to imitate God. But it specifies two things that Abraham was an imitator of God in. Now I don't have any problem with calling things that be not as as though they are. Do you? I understand how that works. We see the example of that even in the first part of the verse 
where it says, as it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations. Abraham comes to the understanding that he has to say that it's done before it can be done. He comes to the realization that he has to call it so in order for it to be so. He has to take sides with God's word that says it's already done. You've already been made the father of nations. I have already made you the father of nations. He has to accept that, believe that, and act on that in order for it to come to pass in physical form or reality. I don't have any problem with calling things that be that were as, well, you know what I'm trying to say. Calling things that are not as though they were. I don't have any problem with those things at all. But the first part of the verse, the first thing that it specifies, that threw me for years. How do you imitate God when it comes to quickening the dead? Now, admittedly, in my ignorance, I would think of bringing dead bodies back to life. I would think like when Jesus raised the, the boy in the casket, delivered him back to his mother. That's what I think of when I think of raising the dead. I think of Lazarus coming out of the tomb and Jesus saying, loose him and let him go. And there may be an element of truth or a principle of truth behind that because that is raising the dead. But remember, it says that Abraham imitated God in this respect. Abraham was like unto God when it comes to quickening the dead. Now, how does God quicken the dead? Through his words. Through his words. This first part or first element, first characteristic, how Abraham was like unto God, very simply means that he began to call or speak life unto his flesh. He began to speak life to his flesh. Now, folks, when we come up on impossible situations, particularly when they're related to our bodies, we have such a tendency, and I think this is true for all of us until we learn and develop ourselves in the things of God. We all seem to have the tendency to talk to God about our bodies or to talk to God about our problems, to talk to God and ask him to work supernaturally to bring life back into dead situations. But Abraham learned to be like God by doing it himself. It's kind of like we talk about the story of Moses when he comes to the Red Sea. They're hemmed in on all sides and Pharaoh's bearing down behind them. The children of Israel say, we're about to die. There's no place for us to go. They're going to slaughter us. Moses stills the people and says, be be still and see the salvation of the Lord. Then he turns to the Lord and says, Lord, what are we going to do? And God rebukes him and says, what are you crying unto me for? He said, you take the rod and stretch it out over the waters and divide the sea. And he does. Now, I don't think that in any way whatsoever, Moses has the power in and of himself to do that. Do you? But God is showing that his power is utilized when we use it rather than just praying for him to use it for us or on our behalf. So here where it says that Abraham was an imitator of God in these two respects, the first one he says is, who quickens the dead? That has to mean that that Abraham began to speak life to his own flesh. He began to speak life to his body. Not because his body has responded in any positive way whatsoever. It hasn't. He doesn't have any physical evidence to prove what God said is true. But he accepts it as truth because God said it. And so he begins to speak life to his body. That falls in line with the second characteristic that is mentioned. That Abraham was like God in that he calls things that be not as though they were. That takes us to verse 18. Who against hope believed in hope. That means he had no physical evidence whatsoever to hope for his body to begin to work and Sarah's body began to work reproductively to enable them to bear a child or have a son. Who against hope believed in hope. He had no physical evidence whatsoever. Everything, and I believe this is part of the reason, probably the greatest reason that God hadn't given him a son earlier in his life. God wanted him to be in a situation, wanted Abraham to be in a situation that looked entirely and absolutely impossible to him so that he would know that he knows that he knows that it was the work of God that brought it about. So he didn't have any natural hope. 
He didn't have any natural circumstance to hope in. He didn't see a sign or a change in his body or in Sarah's that he could hold on to and say, hey, maybe this will work. The only thing he had to hold on to is what God had said. So who against hope believed in hope. Now what hope did he not have? He had no physical evidence to hope in. Well, then what hope did he have? What God had said. That was the only foundation for him to hope for miraculous results. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become. Notice that. That he might become the father of nations. So he understands. uh, Abraham understands. And this is why he's the father of faith for us all. He understood that he had to believe what God said about having made him the father of nations. In order for him to become the father of nations. Now there's no physical evidence for him to, to stand on or to encourage him. So what does he use as a foundation? What God had said. What God had said. That's the only basis for any hope he had. And without hope, you can't have a foundation for faith. So who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. That's when God had taken him out and showed him the stars of the sky. He said, how many are there? He said, there's no way to count. He said, that's how your seed is going to be. Now God said these things to Abraham Years before, years before, again, I believe part of it, maybe the major part of it, is that God wanted Abraham to not have any physical evidence that it could be true, so that he was left entirely dependent on the Word of God. Without God's Word, without God's Word being true, there's no way. It's absolutely impossible. And it's going to happen only... If God's word is true. So who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of nations. According to that which was spoken so shall thy seed be. Verse 19. And being not weak in faith. He considered not his own body now dead. When he was about a hundred years old. Neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Notice what it's saying. It's saying he's not considering the condition of his body. He's not denying it. A lot of people deny the facts and think that's faith. It's not. He's not denying the facts. He just doesn't consider it to be the final word. The fact is his body and Sarah's body are dead reproductively. Now normally that would be the end of the story. But he's got the word of God. The word of God says I have made thee the father of nations. So in order for God's word to be true. He has to look away from. He has to not consider. The condition of his flesh. Because God's word said something that will counteract and change the condition of their flesh. I like the American Standard Version on this. Here where it says, and being not weak in faith. It turns it around to a positive And says, and being strong in faith. He considered not his own body now dead. Neither staggered at the promise of God. But was strong in faith giving glory to God. What does that tell us? First and foremost it tells us that weak faith Or strong faith is a choice. It's not the result of what God has done in you. It's not a matter of some people having greater faith than other people. It's a choice. Abraham chose to be strong in faith. How did he choose to be strong in faith? Instead of looking at the condition of his body and Sarah's body, he looked at the promise of God. He kept his eyes on the promise of God. Now you can see why that would be so important. Because the promise of God, so shall thy seed be. That promise of God is the only thing that can change the condition of his flesh. It's the only thing. I'm amazed at Abraham's spiritual growth and development, to be honest with you folks. He's not born again. He doesn't have the life of God on the inside of him. But he understood through years of walking with the Lord, years of seeing God make his promise good to to him and for him. He understood that when you take sides with God, anything is possible. Take sides against God and you'll never receive anything. But Abraham is taking sides, joining sides with God. 
By looking under the promise of God, looking under the fact that God said, so shall your seed be. Why would God tell Abraham to look at the stars of the sky? Why would he tell him, this is how your seed is going to be, they'll be without number? Why would he tell him that if he didn't intend to bring it to pass? Folks, the word of God has one and only one purpose, and that's to produce results that God says it'll produce. That's it. The whole reason we've got any and every scripture that we can stand on, that we can apply to our own lives, is because God wants to perform what his word says he has done or will do. That's what Abraham understood. Without being born again, he understood this about God. No wonder the Bible calls him the friend of God. He's taking sides with God and not against him. So Abraham made a choice. His choice was to be strong in faith. That choice becomes the example for you and me and for the church world until Jesus comes. Being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. Here again, the, uh, the American Standard Version, I believe it is, says, looking under the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief. What kept him from staggering? What kept him from being discouraged and doubtful? He kept his eyes on the Word. He didn't keep his eyes on his body. Again, he's not denying the circumstances. But every time he looks at his body, he says, I've got the promise of God, so I speak life to my flesh. To something to that effect. I say my body is alive because of the promise of God that was given to me. If his body doesn't live, if his body is not alive, then he can't have children. So in order for the promise of God, so shall thy seed be to come into being. He has to agree with what God said, no matter what his body looks like or no matter how it feels. Looking under the promise of God, he staggered not. Folks, that may be the most important verse in the Bible when it comes to receiving from God. Looking under the promise of God, he staggered not. Looking at the promise of God, he staggered not. The implication is that if you're not looking at the Word, you're going to stagger. If you don't keep your eyes on the truth of God's Word, the promise he's made to you, no matter how impossible it may seem, no matter how it contradicts the things that you see and feel around you, Maybe even the things you see and feel in you. Unless God's word's true, then those things would be impossible. But thank God his word is true. And because his word is true, because there's nothing that can undo God's word, there's nothing that can counteract God's word except unbelief on the part of the individual. There's nothing more powerful than God's word. Because of that, shouldn't it be the thing that we do look at? It's the only place there's victory. It's the only place there's an answer. So looking under the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief, but was strong in faith. What's the characteristic of being strong in faith? Giving glory to God. He praised God for the answer before he had it or before he saw it. He had it by faith. But before he could see it in physical manifestation, before he could see it in physical reality, he began thanking God because it was true. See, folks, here's what happens when you keep your eyes focused on God's Word. It becomes more real to you than the circumstances. It becomes more real to you than the sickness that's attacked your body. God's Word is more true than the cancer the doctor has diagnosed. God's Word is more true than the incurable disease the doctor has diagnosed. God's Word is more true, more real, more sure than x-rays that may show that you've got a physical infirmity or a growth or whatever. God's word is more true than all of those things. But it only becomes more true for you than all these other things is if you look exclusively to what the word says. Giving it a half-hearted glance won't do it. But Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God, Verse 21, here's another characteristic of strong faith. And being fully persuaded that what he, God, had promised, he, God, was able also to perform. You know what brings you to that place of being fully persuaded? 
looking only at the Word of God. Looking only at the Word of God. Now, the devil's going to try to distract you. He's going to try to get you looking at your body. Just like I'm sure he tried getting Abraham to look at his. I'm sure the devil was on his shoulder every day saying, Do you feel any better today, Abraham? Feel any stronger? Got any stirring down below? And Abraham had to counter that and answer, I don't put my faith in what I feel in my body. I speak life unto my body because God said I'm the father of nations. I speak life unto my body. I speak life unto Sarah's body because the word of God says that God has already made me the father of nations. If he ever takes any other position than that, then he's going to stagger. He's going to fail to receive the blessings because of unbelief. Same thing's true for you and me. If you let anything get in front of the truth of what God's word says about what Jesus has done for you and the healing that he's obtained for you, then you'll stagger, you'll waver, and you'll fail to receive. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 8. We'll close with this. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Paul said, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, that means if you've been born again. How many of you, the spirit of God dwells in you? Well, he's talking to you then. If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken. That means make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. In other words, it's saying we have the evidence we have the truth, the reality of life-giving forces within us. And that proof is because we know the Spirit of God's on the inside of us. So what should we do? If we recognize that the Holy Ghost is in us and He is the quickening power of God, then how can our bodies be dead? When we're facing impossible situations... When we're facing medical diagnosis, when we're facing incurable diseases, how can our bodies be dead? How can our bodies be overcome by the power of sickness and or disease when the Bible says that the same power that raised up Jesus from the dead is the quickening agent that he lives and exists in you now? How is that possible? In faith, it's not. According to faith in God's word, it's impossible for us to be overcome with sickness and disease. Doesn't mean we won't have a battle. Doesn't mean we won't have a fight. But we can win every one of those fights. We can come out victoriously in one of those battles. Because the life of God is permeating every cell of our body and every fiber of our being. To raise us up to physical health, divine health, just like it raised Jesus up from the dead. Folks, you can't get more dead than spiritually dead. That's the ultimate in death. And the Bible says that Jesus was quickened by the Holy Ghost, made alive by the Holy Ghost. You can't be made alive unless you're dead. So Jesus came to the point where he was paying, had paid the price for all of man's sins, all of man's sicknesses, all of man's Poverty and lack and lack of provision. Jesus came to the place where all those things were settled. All those things were paid. And the eternal justice of God stepped in. And the Holy Ghost raised Jesus instantly from the dead. Not physical death. I'm not talking about raised from physical death. I'm talking about being raised up from spiritual death. The Bible says in Romans chapter 4, the last verse of the chapter, it says Christ was justified for us Christ was raised from the dead when we were justified. King James says for our justification, but the word in the Greek is literally when. It's talking about a matter of time. Jesus was justified. He was raised from the dead when we were made righteous. Not a moment later. But when the price was paid, Jesus instantly was consumed with the Spirit of God and raised from spiritual death to be the firstborn among many brethren. 
You've got the same new birth experience Jesus has. I know that's hard for us to accept and hard for us to understand, but meditate on that. Your new birth is the same as Jesus' new birth. He was spiritually dead just as much as you and I were spiritually dead. And the same Holy Ghost that raised him from spiritual death is the one that made us new creatures in Christ and raised us from spiritual death. And that quickening power of God dwells in you and me every minute of every day, saturating our flesh, saturating every cell of our body with the healing power of God, quickening us, making us alive in whatever way sickness and disease has brought death upon us. Since the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he shall, not might, not we hope so, maybe so, he shall quicken our mortal bodies by his spirit in us. When that becomes the focus of your attention, the sole focus of your attention, then sickness and disease melts away. It simply melts away. That's what happened for Abraham. He kept his eyes on the right thing. He kept his words saying the right thing. And he becomes the father of faith for us all. He becomes our eternal example for receiving the miraculous. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege to walk in faith. We feel so sorry for people that have always had it easy in life, Lord, because they fail to understand the great truth of your faithfulness. Thank you, Father, that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we were healed. We're not going to be healed someday. We were healed when Jesus accomplished the work. Because your word is true. And Jesus did bear our sins and our sickness. Therefore, we agree with the word. We take sides with you, Father. No matter what it looks like, no matter what the doctor is diagnosed. We look only at your word because your word is the thing that changes things. Your word is more true than the diagnosis we've received. Or the pain that attacks and attaches itself to our flesh. So we choose, Father, to look only at your word. We choose to speak and say those things which you have said of us. By Jesus' stripes, we were healed. If we were healed, then we are healed now by faith. Thank you, Father, that your word is true. and Nothing can overcome your word. Nothing can undo your word. Nothing is greater than your word. Therefore, we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. We bless you, Father. We thank you for making your word good in our lives. We count on your faithfulness and know that you'll do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here.